you are just now jumping in with us, we are going through the book of Galatians. Last week, tried to do a little recap of where we left off prior to Advent, and today we're picking up uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, he says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. He went to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. And he set before them, the people in Jerusalem, the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. This is very important because we'll spend a lot of time here. Paul says, I went and talked to the, the leaders in Jerusalem, and I talked to them privately. The reason I even told them what I was doing is because I had a fear that I was running or potentially had run my race in vain. Okay? Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we're going to dive into a little context here. Um, what, what Paul's talking about, what's going on here. He says he went, 14 years later, he goes again to Jerusalem. So he just described last week, we talked about the first time he had went. Now he's going back to Jerusalem. He says he went in response to a revelation. Now, there's this story. I remember when we went through the book of Acts. Around Acts chapter 11, there was a prophet named Agabus. Y'all remember Agabus? Mm. Anybody? Nobody remembers. Phil, you do? Steve does. Agabus, there's, I'll just read Acts chapter 11, verse 27. You ain't got to turn there. I'll read it straight to you from the uh, ESV here. It says, now in these days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. More than likely, this revelation that Paul says sent him back to Jerusalem was the revelation that God had given Agabus that there was a famine coming. So Paul writes about this in several of his letters, how he is taking a collection back to Jerusalem. A collection for who? 
Anybody? For the poor. There's a famine coming, and they say, oh, there's a famine coming, so Paul is going around, and every time he takes up a collection, he's taking up a collection not to support himself, but to support the poor. Okay? We'll, we'll talk more about this shortly. Um, it says that Paul has with him Barnabas. Now, I want to just give a little background on Barnabas, because next week we will talk about how Barnabas winds up betraying Paul. And it's important to know how, how tight they were before we see this betrayal. Barnabas was a Jew from the tribe of Levi. But Barnabas was also one of those people in Acts chapter 4, verse 37, who is noted as one of the people who is moved by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes. And his response to the coming of the Spirit is to sell a field that he owns. So he owns a field that he's obviously not using. And he takes the money that he got from the selling of his field and brings it to the apostles so that they can then give to the poor. This is Barnabas. So this same Barnabas gets to see this money that he earned from selling this field. He actually gets to see where it's going to go in this story. Um, now, where we're going to spend some time this morning is verse 2. That second part of verse 2. Um, he says, I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. This is where things get really important. So, Paul as we talked about last week, had this revelation that he was persecuting the Lord. That Jesus himself comes and he says, he blinds, when he comes to Paul, Paul is blinded. Paul was on a horse, he actually gets knocked off. And he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Saul, Saul, which was his, um, that was his Hebrew name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he has this whole uh, revelation where he sees that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of this story that Paul had been immersing himself in his whole life. And now he sees something about Jesus that has made the good news accessible to the whole world, not just the Jews. Now, this is hard for us. Because we did not grow up in this time, so it's hard for me to take us back to this context for us to see how groundbreaking it was that Paul begins ministering to the Gentiles and not requiring that they be circumcised. I want you to know, according to everything Paul knew up until this point, the only way you could be the people of God is if you were a Jew. It's important. We know this. The only way you could be the people of God is if you were a Jew. And so, for the Jews, they weren't trying to, like, force some kind of craziness on men when they converted to belief in Jesus. They were saying, well, if you believe in Jesus, then that's fine, but you still got to be a Jew. And in order for you to be a Jew, you still have to be circumcised, right? And Paul takes Titus with him, this, this man who was a, a, a Grecian man who wasn't circumcised, takes him back to Jerusalem, and for whatever reason, now this is where things get interesting for us. For whatever reason, the church in Jerusalem observes Titus, and they say, I guess you can be a part of the people of God and not be circumcised. Now, what must this man have been doing for people to see that in his life, in his body, just in observing him, that it is true that Jesus is the Messiah? 
Say it again, John. One of the things is giving, right? Yeah. These guys are showing up. They came all the way over here just because they wanted to help the poor. Um, that's one of the markers. One of the distinguishing features that God is at work is that we no longer regard ours as ours. We, re we regard ours as God's. There is an observable difference when we actually come to know Jesus as the Messiah. Now, here's where things get interesting, and this is where I thought it was very interesting what John was doing this morning with the music. This whole story in Galatians is only possible with and through the work of the Holy Spirit. With and through the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have been able to accomplish your Christian life without dependence on the Holy Spirit, you haven't been living a proper Christian life. Now here's our question. Where is he and how do I get to him and how does he get to me? I'm all in for Holy Spirit doing some stuff. How, where, when, what? That's the whole book of Galatians. Good news for you. This is where we're going for the next, I don't know, four months probably. But I want you to see something that's going on here. Paul knows for sure he's supposed to preach to Gentiles. Who are Gentiles in this story? Let's just say this. They're not Jews. Paul knows he's supposed to preach to Gentiles. And he knows that God has confirmed it, but he still goes back. He says, I wanted to go all the way back to Jerusalem just to make sure I had not run my race in vain. And at the end of it, here's what's interesting. They don't decide, hey, Peter, you need to stop telling people to be circumcised because in Jesus you don't have to be circumcised. You know what? They actually say, yeah, they can keep getting circumcised. That's fine. That's fine. God will work through that. And also, God is working through them not being circumcised. God is working. We're going to get there shortly. You just need to see that this is what's going on. This could have been the first church split in the history of the church, right? So the church has just started. Boom! God has done this wonderful thing. And now all of a sudden, people on the day of Pentecost, there's 120 people. I'm in the upper room now. There's 120 of us up here. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes over us and tongues like fire begin to come out of our mouth and we begin worshiping God in actual human languages, okay? This is the Feast of Pentecost. There are people coming from all over the world, people who speak all kinds of languages. And all of a sudden, for the first time since Genesis chapter 11, people can all understand each other. There's a unity going on for the first time since Genesis chapter 11 that has never taken place since the beginning of time. And this unity is declaring the wonder of God. Okay, these aren't words that people can't understand. If John shows up to this get-together and he speaks Russian, somebody is standing up in this room and the Holy Spirit has come on them and they are declaring in Russian that Jesus is Lord, that God is the God of all gods, that he is wonderful, that he is majestic, that he is powerful, that he is the name above all names. And John's hearing this, he's saying, they're saying this about God in a language I understand. These are Greeks and Elamites and, and Persians, and, and I can understand them. So there's this unity that's happening, and this is what God is doing, is he's taking the divided story of humanity, and he's bringing us all back into one family. And here we go, though. The doggone thing just started, and now Paul goes back to Jerusalem because he want, wants to make sure he hasn't run in vain. Why is he, 
Why and how could he have run in vain? If Paul keeps going to establish a Gentile church and Peter keeps going to establish a Jewish church, guess what we have? We have divisions, factions, sectarianism. And a sure sign that the Holy Spirit isn't present is division. What does that mean then? The sure sign that he is, is unity. The oneness of the gospel, its character as the climax of Israel's promise and hope, and consequently the communion of all in Christ and so in Israel, would have been effectively destroyed from the start if this meeting fell apart. If this meeting falls apart, the whole thing is a wash. Because what Jesus has done in this new people is he has made it where there's neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither barbarian nor Scythian. I don't know what those are either. I'm just quoting it, okay? Something about what God has done is he's taken it where no longer are we defined by our ethnic markers, our racial markers, or even our sexual markers. He has made us all one family in Jesus, no one greater than the other. If you want to know if God is at work, see whether or not things operate like a circle or like a triangle. If they operate like a triangle, it probably ain't the Lord. Because what God is trying to do is he's trying to, and we're going to see this in a minute, he's trying to build a people up who are a reflection of who he is. Who is he? He is Father. He is Son. He is Holy Spirit. Yet he is one. Well, that makes no sense. That's absurd. That sounds like three. Right? Something about God's own self is that God exists in the perpetual giving of himself away. God exists in the perpetual giving of God's self away. It's this circular existence where God is not standing there taking, taking, taking. His very existence. God is love. Therefore, the, the sustainable force of God is the perpetual giving of love away. So even before there was anything, there was God, and God was existing as a communal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. we just gotten some 500 years of theology right there, so if you missed it, we'll get back to it later, okay? Now, here's where things get, get funny, and we're going to sit on the Scripture just a minute, and then I'll make this contemporary for us. So if, you, if you're not into like what the Bible means, just breathe a minute. I mean, just take a, take a minute. Just breathe, and you ain't got to pay attention. I'll get to something in a minute you can pay attention to. If you're into what the Bible means, this is important for you right here. Because this was news to me when I read it. I thought that Paul was going to go back to the church in Jerusalem and tell them, y'all got to stop telling even the Jews to be circumcised. You're going to ruin the whole thing if they're getting circumcised. And he doesn't say that. He says, y'all go and preach the gospel to the, the Jews. I'll go preach the Gospels to, to the Gentiles. And never once did he say, 
Stop making them be circumcised. Now, here's what's important. How many of y'all have ever heard that the Jews believe in something like a works-based religion? That they believe you have to earn God's favor. Anybody ever heard this? Anybody ever heard that? Has anybody ever tried to earn God's favor through your own behavior? What do you do? I mean, but what do you, what do, you do though? What, what's like some of the ways that you can, that you can curry God's favor? Don't cuss. don't cuss. So if you go four or five days and don't cuss, Alex, are you then more confident to ask God for something? All right. Right, because he's, he's curried God's favor. Somebody else, what can you do to, to get, like, to, to buffer God a bit where he's, like, looking towards you and then you can make a request of him? You can give. Yeah, like, so now I give a little bit. I've been giving to the church probably six months. I'm, I'm asking for something. Yeah. Uh, pray. Somebody said pray over here. I, I've, had a, I've had a pretty good prayer routine now for some months. I mean, I know... God's probably for me right now. Like, we're in. What else can I do to start getting God's favor? Service. Yeah, anytime I can offer something to someone in need, I can gain little, to it's tokens, really. And, and once you get enough tokens, it's like going to the arcade. It's like the, the divine arcade. You, service is like the one where the, the light goes around and around and around. Service, I mean, you can get a lot of tickets right there. And then you take the tickets back to God, and he's like, I need, um, uh, I've had a toothache, God. Well, you got enough tickets? All right, let's cash them in. Uh, Tina's got a doctor's appointment Tuesday. She's over at the machine. Uh, time to go cash them in. This is oftentimes how we think about what God, how God works. It's oftentimes how we think. Now, I want to debunk something right quick because the Jews did not believe they were earning God's favor with their behavior. Never did they ever believe that. I don't know who told us that, but they lied. By very definition, the Jews knew that they were elected by God not because of anything they had ever done. That was their whole identity. Their kids knew that at like age six. That God has chosen us because we are special, not because we've done anything. And the only reason we're special is because God chose us. So actually, he chose us and made us special. This is what they knew about themselves. Um, so their adherence to the things like the commandments or sacrifice wasn't to curry God's favor. They knew that they were the favored ones. That's who they were. So it's important for us to see this when we start seeing the story unfold, that this is not a battle in Galatians between earning God's approval and him already approving us. We'll talk about what it actually is. Um, but here's where things get interesting. Paul's partial account of the agreement in Jerusalem. So he says that there's this agreement. They extend to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognize the grace that was given to them. Once again... They saw something in Titus, and they saw, they perceived, some of y'all's translations actually said they perceived, they saw the grace that was given to Paul. Something about what God has done in Christ through the Holy Spirit in us is observable. People can see it. I don't know how many weeks it takes, but they saw it in Titus, and they saw it in Paul. And when they saw it, they said, we're in with y'all. Right hand of fellowship. We're in. 
We're the same team. He said, but before I let go of your hand, don't forget the poor. And Paul said, I was already with you. We'll, come, uh, we'll circle back to that one in a minute. But for those of you who are reading the Bible and want to take the Bible seriously, this is for you right here. Then we'll jump back to some, some stuff. As a mark of ethnicity and a sign of difference, Jews emphasize circumcision, right? Anybody ever read the Bible? How many times have you ever read the word circumcision? More than was comfortable to read, right? Um, the Christ event renders this cultural marker no longer a sign of superior status, but precisely because this Jewish practice is a matter of indifference, there's nothing to prevent its maintenance among Jews. They don't outlaw circumcision here. I hope, we're going to get this in just, maybe this next round we'll get it. Without this recognition, Paul's work would be in vain, not because it might be invalid before God, but because it could be complete only when Jewish and Gentile assemblies recognize that each other are valid and thereby relativize their differences through their common allegiance to Jesus. It matters greatly to Paul that there is a successful mission to Jews. What he desires is not the formation of a Gentile church that's independent of Jewish believers, but an interdependent fellowship of Jews and non-Jews in Christ. The right hand of fellowship is the recognition that the mission to Gentiles can proceed beyond the limits of the Jewish tradition, but also that the Jewish mission can proceed within them. Okay, here's what's important. I'm going to sit down. How much time I got? I don't even know when we started. What time we start? Is unity important? How much so? How much so is unity important? Let me tell you how I know that the a large part of what we've called the move of the Holy Spirit here in the United States has not been the move of the Holy Spirit at all. A lot of what we consider church has been a gathering of like-minded friends and not a gathering of the body of Christ. A lot of the reason church has been boring and powerless and ineffective and without purpose is because it has been absent the Holy Spirit. And when we decided to define what the presence of the Holy Spirit looked like, we shut him out. Y'all got to hear what I just said. When we decided to define what the presence of the Holy Spirit looked like, we shut him out. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a church service where the music will get going and people just, come Lord Jesus, come, come Holy Spirit, come do a work in me. Come fire me up Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. And it is Holy Spirit, come and do something in me that will make me more powerful, more blessed, more favored. Not Holy Spirit, come and bring about a unity that only you could ever bring. 
when most of our churches are predominantly white or predominantly black or predominantly Hispanic or predominantly Korean or predominantly a particular ethnic class or predominantly uh, a particular uh, ideological group, we don't have the move of the Spirit. We have a gathering of people who like to see themselves in the mirror. And what I'm telling you about the church of God, I'm not talking about the, out of Cleveland denomination, I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ, what I'm telling you about the body of Christ is that we are supposed to embody a unity that should be so observable by the outside world that they say, why are those people eating dinner together? They got nothing in common. Because you remember what happened when sin came? One of the first things that happened when sin came is brother was transformed into enemy. And Cain then murders his enemy. The redemption and restoration of all things that God is doing in Christ through the Holy Spirit is he is actually bringing us back together where we can look and say, no, that is my brother. We are family. And I didn't get to pick who it was. The death of the church is the homogeneity of the church. There you go. There's your word. Y'all know how good an ecosystem is that is homogenous? Well, no, because we don't know what homogenous means. What does homogenous mean, Phil? Of one kind, right? So if I have an ecosystem out here that is all... Uh, what's the pine tree everybody plants, John? What is it? Carnivorous, yeah. So if I got 40 acres out here, just carnivorous pines, you know how much more susceptible to destruction it is than if it was a, a diverse ecosystem? You know how much more susceptible it is? Anybody know? Incredibly more susceptible. The same thing, this is what God is doing in us is he's supposed to make, we're supposed to be the regathering of every tribe and tongue, every nation, every color, every sex, every ethnic group, every economic class. That's what the church is supposed to be. And if we don't see it, we don't see the move of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the problem. We can't conjure it up in our own strength. We can't have a campaign where we say, all right, we're going to start a diversity campaign. Because if you try to have a multi-ethnic church in Ramburn, Alabama, guess what? You're going to struggle. You know how many people in Ramburn look the same? Most of them. So we can't then look around and say, okay, we all sort of look the same. But we do have to say, okay, God is bringing in Alex and Steve Ogden. That's weird. God is bringing in Philip. Who else? I'm going to get somebody. Who's very opposite Philip? And Brenda Lloyd, they go to church together. 
But their kids don't play sports together, right? Their kids aren't on the same. They don't. But the, they must be. They're not related. Um. But Phil reads that weird philosophical stuff. Jesus said something in John chapter 17. He said, my, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May they be brought into complete unity so that the world may then believe that you have been the one that sent me. How will the world know that God sent Jesus? If we're, if we're united. <laughs> well, that was easy. This is why Paul said, it was worth my effort back to Jerusalem to sit with these leaders in private so that I will not have run this race in vain because if we would have gone separate ways, it would have been over. Been worthless. It's no good for us to look at the church down the road and say, God's not working because they ain't doing it like us. No, he's working. I promise you he is. I've been there. He's working in the Methodist church. I was there. I didn't think he was working. He was working. He's working at the Baptist church. I didn't think he was. The Southern Baptist church. I didn't think he was, and he was. He's working at the American Baptist church. Y'all don't even know there was such a thing. He's working there. You know where he's working? He's working in the Catholic church. I'm a dog. He's working at the church of God. He's working at the Episcopal church. He, he's working all over the place. He's just working. And he ain't working no better here than he's working anywhere else. I promise you, because he wouldn't do that. That ain't the way it works. Here's where things get interesting. And I don't know how long I've been preaching, so I apologize, Danny and Angel. They said this, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The axis of unity for the church is our responsibility for the poor. The axis of unity for the body of Christ is our responsibility for the poor. Why is that? Because what we're about to learn about this whole operation, about grace, because this whole book is about grace, is there, there's this paradox in following Jesus. Because does Jesus require that our behavior change when we start following him? Trick question. Does he require it or expect it? John says, he, now there, does our behavior change when we start following Jesus? Who, who initiated that? The Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. A tree is judged by its fruit. So if I 
respond. Remember last week, Paul doesn't say, when I decided to follow Jesus, he says, God who is at work in Christ Jesus revealed himself to me. So when we finally see that God has been trying to reveal himself to us and we give over to that grace, something about the recognition that it was God in pursuit of us and not us in pursuit of God enables us actually to then pursue God. Something about seeing that it has been God all along in search of us, not, not us all along in search of God, enables us to actually love God. Because what does God require of us? What does God expect out of those who bear his image? To love one another. Now, how many of y'all deserve the grace given you by Jesus? How many of you would say to Jesus... I am worth your death. This is big. One of the most important things I've said all day, because this is how we're going to have to tie this together. How many of you would say to Jesus, Jesus, I am worth your death? Anybody? Thank you, Robert. He wouldn't be mad if you said it. When we finally see what God saw, obedience will be an afterproduct, a byproduct. When we finally see what God saw, obedience will be a byproduct. Robert's right. If I told Jesus today, I am worth your death, aren't I? He'd say, you sure was. And it is that realization that then enables me to see that so was Tina, so was Philip, so was Kelly, so was Sarah, so was Aaron, so was Becky. And then I'm able to see, okay, there's, okay, um, if I don't see Trent this way, it's not because it's not the way it is. It's because I'm not seeing properly. And so my prayer then is, okay, God, show me what you see. Show me what you saw. Because all he ever asked of us was to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as who? So if we could see that we were worth it, guess who else we could see was worth it? If I'm having issues loving my neighbor... It's probably because I have not slowed down long enough to say, you're for me, are you? <laughs> for no doggone reason, you're for me. Or for every doggone reason, you're for me. Why the poor? When we act on behalf of the poor, there are several things that take place. The main one, especially in this context, is we get to see who we were and who we are minus the Spirit of God in material ways, in the ways that our eyes process the best. The one who has no voice actually gets a voice. The one who has no bread actually gets bread. The one who has no clothing actually gets clothed. What have they done to deserve it? Be in that category. And the same is true for us. 
What I want to encourage you is this, and this is going to sound crazy. The world will know that God sent Jesus when we are one. If you are here at this church because of an inability to reconcile with a brother or sister from somewhere else, we never want to see you again. Go in peace. Here, I'd love to see you at a restaurant, but never want to see you back here again. Because we can't move forward unless we are living in the unity. Where Alex is able to look across the room at Steve Ogden and say, that's my brother, I give my life for him. Where Philip's able to look across the room at Brenda and say, that's my sister, I give my life for her. Where Kelly's able to look across the room at Aaron and say, that's my brother, I give my life for him. Where Keisha's friend's burden is my burden because it's her friend's burden. It is this unity that when it is observed by the world, this is what, what Jesus said, when, when I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. It is these kind of actions, this kind of living, that when, when this happens, God continues to work.